this is church, so we don't talk about politics. Particularly, we don't talk about what candidates to vote for, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. We just give you a voting guide, and we metaphorically circle the issues that you should care about, and then you make your own choice whether you're going to vote for a godly, honorable candidate or some, you know, godless heathen. Up to you, because we are nonpartisan. As we continue our series, Soapboxes and Hand Grenades, what we've said is that it seems like in all the critical issues of life, there's somebody standing on a soapbox telling us what to do, while somebody else is throwing a hand grenade into the mix to blow things up. We combined them this week into a soapbox slash hand grenade, which goes something like this. We're completely bipartisan, nonpartisan, and antipartisan, as long as you agree with us. Seriously, you know how we deal with bipartisanship. You should be bipartisan. When I have an issue that I want you to agree with me on. And then I cannot believe how you're going to hold your your, uh, opinion and not join together for the common good. However, when I oppose you, look, it's a matter of conviction. Seriously, I I couldn't possibly agree with that. And the church so often what it does is it says, hey, we don't, we're not telling you to vote for at all. Vote for any candidate you want as long as they don't believe this and they do believe that. And there we go. You know, I don't know about you, but I, I used to be heavily politically involved when I was younger, and, and I abandoned it. Really, I'm not encouraging this as a methodology, but I threw my hands up and said, oh, just forget it. And part of the reason I just said, just forget it, is because I couldn't find any category that I fit in. You know, there was, there was really no group that would accept me. But, you know, I was like, I, I believe certain things here and certain things here, but all the lines were so rigid. It seems to me in America that politics has devolved and devolved badly, such that what ends up happening is we have people deeply entrenched on other sides. And much of the political process and a lot of time and money and energy seems to be devoted either to keeping certain people out of office or when they get in office to critique critique everything they do enough so that they can't possibly get elected again. And something I submit to you has been lost in the process, which is the common good. Now, really, I do mean this to be uh, nonpartisan. I also believe that I'll step on three-quarters of your toes along the way, so off we go. Because it doesn't matter if you're for Obama or against Obama, or if you were for Bush or against Bush, it's somebody is always waiting in on one side or the other and seeking to undermine whatever is going on. I know what you're thinking, well, some of those things need to be undermined, I guess. But really, in our best moments, I don't think any of us can deny that we spend far too much time trying to undermine the opposition rather than ask some better questions. Last week, and this came out of a conversation I had with Steve, and Steve said this to me, I thought, this is just so apropos for our series. And what Steve said to me is like, we spend all of our time in the edges of the conversation. We make the edges the center. We pull out individual issues, and particularly in politics, and make them the litmus test. And we spend our conversations in 2% of the edges, and we ignore the center. I would say that what looks like the center in American politics today is the vilification of whoever disagrees with us. And uh, this, again, nonpartisan, either side. Last, last year, this is my, one of my um, 
case studies of the way American politics works is that last year in the United States Senate election, Kay Hagan and uh, Elizabeth Dole was the nastiest, most infantile debate I have ever seen. They, they, they tore each other to shreds. You're sitting there thinking, in the end, how are they going to finish this campaign and make it about anything substantive as they threw crazy ads on TV at one another? Just they sort of true, trying to defend a position that no way could be defended with, with any common sense. And really, if they were in kindergarten, you'd put them in opposite corners and you'd say, rule number one is we learn how to play with one another nicely. Until you can play with one another nicely, you're going to have to sit in the corner. Because they didn't play nice. And it was very difficult in the midst of that political campaign to see where the common good was at all. The common good seemed to be the other side is evil, and so I can't afford to let them get in power. The vilification of whoever's on the other side has become the American political pastime. One of the verses in Proverbs that I read along the way this week says this, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And that's one of those phrases, very true, but the real clear uh, distinction or uh, thing you have to define there is what is evil. And in American politics, we've made other people evil. I'll give you an example. And again, I'll step on everybody in the room's toes, I think. There is broadly and being incredibly simplistic, two economic theories of how you should run a country. And one of them is you need to have the government do as little as possible. The economy will do its best when the government has the least intervention and the invisible hand of the market runs capitalism. Another economic theory would be to say there's no invisible hand. Adam Smith was not really all right. He was, he, there's no invisible hand in the economy. The government must intervene for the sake of the common good. These are economic theories. However, in American politics, it looks like this. Oh, so you want to take money away from social programs so you don't care about the poor and the needy. You just want big business to have lots of money and the wealthy trample on the poor, the rich to be richer, the poor to get poorer. So this is your view. Or socialist, is that where we're going? Really? So what you think really is that you just want to consolidate power for yourself and control everything. And you don't trust anybody out there to do anything right. Only the government knows, you elitist. These are economic theories. And yet we pitch them as if the other person's heart is deeply flawed and they have a horrific agenda. I have serious differences in economic theory with some of you. I mean, we'll, we'll view these things very differently. Am I really willing to go to the place, if you and I were having a conversation, where I'm going to call you evil and I will do anything in my power to stop you? Or I will smear you because of what you're trying to do to this country? Of, of course not. And yet, this is de rigueur. This is how we run American politics. This is just the way it is. The other side doesn't disagree with us. They are wrong, evil, socialist, or fascist. we got two categories. You can be a fascist or a socialist, apparently. 
You can't actually have differences in economic theory, both of which you believe will help other people. We've lost the actual political debate. In the midst of vilification of one side or the other, and we're standing on the edges screaming at each other. While, as this, the line from Muse goes, build a fortress, shield your beliefs, touch the divide while we fall into a ravine. We keep the divide very clear. You're on that side, I'm on this side. I am guarding my beliefs with everything within me. And all the while, while we divide ourselves from one another, the country falls into a ravine. We're asking the wrong questions. And so today, what I want to do is ask a different question about our political engagement. I, I'm, like I said, I, I gave up a while back. I, I mean, I, I found my space of engagement in the last few years. But there, I've, and I've been the whole range, you understand. I was a socialist, really. Not kidding. Not just other people said I was. I said I was. I was a socialist for a while. And really, I, did, I wasn't hoping through that to dominate other people and consolidate power for myself. It was based on a view of economic theory. And then I sort of swung the other way, and then I went, ah, forget it. I found my space of engagement. My space of engagement has to, for me, and this is my encouragement for you, and I, I think this is honestly what wisdom looks like in the Bible. Again, as I was reading along the way this week, one of the clear themes was wisdom looks like this. It looks like loving mercy and justice. That's what wisdom looks like. And so... I am not wanting you to disparage your political views. I'm not wanting you to trash them, but I'm saying they should be subservient to a larger question. And that larger question, the center, is this. What makes the city rejoice? In Proverbs 11.10, the verse we have put as our vision statement, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. What makes the city rejoice? What does that look like? Well, perhaps it gets clearer if we flip it. What makes a city weep? A city weeps when kids sleep on the street. And a city weeps when a 16-year-old girl believes she has no recourse for her life but to begin sleeping with men for money. A city weeps when Children don't have enough to eat. City weeps when the homeless can find no way out of their homelessness. City weeps when some citizens walk by those who have no hope. The city weeps when we divide ourselves into camps. The city weeps when those who have go, hey, I got here on my own. What well, life hasn't been easy for me either. But you know, I picked myself up by my bootstraps, which you didn't. You can too. The city weeps when we touch the divide. When unity is lost. When sadness reigns unabated. There's a lot that makes the city weep. How do we make it rejoice? What does it look like for us to engage our city in such a way that a city actually changes? 
Well, in the interest of rethinking our engagement, let me pose a few things this morning which do affect our political views. First is this. How do we, how do we, make a, how do we begin to try to make a, a city rejoice? Well, it begins in this space. We don't content ourselves with doing something good. In other words, here's a, here's a very clever trap for us as Americans. We have our life. Our life is going just fine, thank you. And we feel like we ought to do something for other people, something. And so we do something. And then we're done. Because, hey, what do you want from me? <laughs> I got my own life going on here. I did something. I've I've done a good deed today. What else do you want from me? We can take that position. I submit to you the city will never rejoice if we take that position. Because we've made our ultimate aim, I do something. Not what makes the city rejoice. For example, to be brutally frank... We have engaged with Bishop Spa Middle School, lowest performing middle school in the state of North Carolina. And out of the generosity of many of you, over 200 backpacks at their request were bought and were filled with the supplies that the kids need, which we believe will make them successful, help to make them far more successful at their school. And there are hundreds of other backpacks and more material. Is that battery? Should I just keep talking? I am just keeping talking. I'll keep talking until you tell me to do something else, like stop talking, for example. So, we've given those backpacks. Guess what? It's still the lowest performing middle school in the state of North Carolina. Kids are still going home to a desperate environment. Kids still stand a risk of ending up in drugs and prostitution because they feel like they have no hope. That school's not yet rejoicing. We did something, and I don't want to diminish what we did. It was a good thing. But a grave danger in terms of engagement in a city is when we do something and we stop because we did something. In the political process, I voted, right? I did my civic duty. I even knew who some of the candidates were. I voted. I'm an engaged citizen. It's not my fault if the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I did my duty. And and please understand how he says, I bought a backpack. Hey, it's not my fault if the school's still underperforming. It's not about fault. It's about what question we want to answer with our lives. We have submitted that the question we want to answer is what makes our city rejoice? Not what makes me feel better about doing a little bit. And so that means we press in. We engage heart, mind, body, and soul so that the city actually changes. It also means that the greatest, and I'll define my terms in a minute, the greatest bounded set for our engagement is those who want to make the city rejoice. This is what I mean. In American political activism, normally the bounded set, the borders in which we act, the bounded set is our political identity. 
And so I can work with anybody who fits in this bounded set. Right-wing Republican. Fit in there, and I'll, I'll work with you completely. Social liberal. I, right there. That, you and me, babe. We're in there together. The bounded set in which we work and which Warehouse has made this decision. Our bounded set is what makes the city rejoice. And so we work with anyone who's in that set. If you want to change the city for good, if you want to see homeless people have homes, if you want to see failing children not fail, if you want to see families without the presence of God in their family have it, if you're in there, any of those things, we're, we're, you, we're, we're in this together. Off we go. That is our bounded set. What makes our city rejoice? And so, at times, there may be strange bedfellows. And so, we can't afford to stake out political positions and trash somebody who disagrees with us. Because it conflicts with what we want to see happen. If your goal is to see more Republicans in office, off you go. If your goal is to see more Democrats in office, go for it. I submit to you, if you get your dream, you'll be sadly disappointed. If your goal is to see the city rejoice, then you're willing to engage in real action and real dialogue with people you disagree with. I submit at that point, a Democrat, a Republican, a Libertarian will be standing side by side because they want the same thing. They want to see the homeless person have a home. And that's where you unite with. And so, you unite with Democrats who believe that, and you'll not unite with Republicans who don't, and vice versa. Understand, I can use any political term you want in there. Our bounded set, the place of our choice of activism, where we band together, is those who want to see the city rejoice. And so our political views become subservient to that. Still important, subservient to that. There's a verse, again, along the way I was reading this week. As I read this week, it kept, this, you know, verses just kept hitting me. There's another one that said, The woman of folly is loud. How often does the voice of folly scream from our radios? Thinking, 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 should he really say it? Sure. The moment I say this line, you will think things, and some of you will want to say things. <laughs> President Obama received the Nobel Peace Prize. And the raging debate on that is stunning. And I submit to you, because the debate rages so much, we can't even get to the issue, which is, why does someone get a Nobel Peace Prize? Because if you say, really? Then people say, oh, there you go. You're an Obama hater. You're, you, know, you, don't, you don't care about this man who's trying to change the world. If you say, yes, exactly. Oh, there you go. Whatever. Just because you love Obama, you're glad you got the Nobel Peace Prize. We can't actually even get to the issue. Who does, what, what do you get? No, I have no idea. I want to know the criterion for any of this stuff. 
Why does someone get a Nobel Peace Prize? I don't know. It's possible it's like an honorary doctorate. At my school, at Bucknell, seriously, this is, I'll, just, I'll just lay it out there. Very sad. The year I graduated, the year before I graduated, we had this marvelous speaker. But the year I graduated, Bob Keeshan was given an honorary doctorate. You know who that is? Captain Kangaroo. You can't make this stuff up. I found out and I was like, oh my God. Captain Kangaroo received an honorary doctorate the year I graduated, and he was our commencement speaker. Woohoo! He brought along Mr. Moose and Mr. Green Jeans. I'm just kidding, he didn't. But see, the whole point is we can't even get to the real issue. And such is the way with trying to change our city. We can't even get to the real issue because we're yelling at each other. Rather than going, okay, here's what I'll do. I will gather anybody who, anybody want to make the city rejoice, anybody who would like to see kids have a better life. Let's, let's join together. Let's, we're going to have some controversy. We're going to disagree about things. You know, we're going to engage in some contentious. But let's see if we can find the core that makes the city rejoice. Let's band together to tackle the actual issues that have forced because we want the city to rejoice. Now, that sounds all fine and dandy, but there's two parts fine and dandy. I can't believe I just said that. But I said Captain Kangaroo, so, you know, I've already reached the bottom. We want to make the city rejoice. I'm submitting to you that's our highest level of engagement. But there's the front part of that verse, which sometimes we just skip past. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. People are righteous in the Bible when they give their life away expecting nothing in return. The Proverbs 11 is a series of antithetical statements. And antithetical says one thing, then it flips it. And most of them are about the wicked and the righteous. And, and we place those labels quickly and easily on people. The righteous are those who give their life away expecting nothing in return. What makes somebody become that? So that they're able to push aside some things they hold dear for the sake of a city rejoicing and stopping weeping. We become the righteous when a couple of things happen. And in my opinion, truly from the heart, it happens only in our engagement with the reality of Jesus in our lives. Because a couple of things shift. One is our identity gets found in something outside of our own achievement. And so we're able to be humble. Humility is a difficult thing to come by. Early parts of Proverbs 11, with proud comes disgrace. With humility comes wisdom. How do you become somebody who is humble enough to put aside their own thoughts for a higher agenda? when your identity is founded outside of yourself. Really, so many of our things we align with are about trying to define ourselves, trying to find an identity. It's who I am. I'm a political conservative. I'm a this, I'm a that. Christ offers us an identity outside of our achievement and outside of our labels. You know, Jesus asked a big question. What is it that will make people rejoice? Or to flip the question, what will stop them from weeping? What needs to happen in people's lives 
so that they can find an end to their misery, both inflicted from outside and within. And so he came to earth and he laid down his life and he rose from the dead and he called people to himself and he said, you don't have to do anything to earn this. Absolutely nothing. You can have a a love and a relationship with me that you cannot possibly lose. And so you can be free. Your identity will be child of God and you don't need to forge another one. And out of that, you can live. The righteous prosper when they find their identity, not in labels that someone else or they themselves have put on, but when they find their identity and their relationship with God. The righteous also prosper when we realize and we open our hearts wide to God and understand that life's a gift, freely given. You know, I, I alluded a while back to it's easy to stake out that position of, hey, I got myself here. <laughs> Come on. I worked hard. I made the most of my opportunities. And you can too. I, I'll never forget. It was, this, it was this, just a searing little moment when I was a college student at someone's, an, an older, some older people's house. Older, they were younger than me, I'm sure. But they were, you know, and we, I, the guy had a nice car. And all I said to him was, Hey, nice car. And he goes, I got a lecture. Son, if you work hard, if you put your nose to the grindstone, and if you go after which one, then you too can have a nice car one day. Look, I just liked your car. (laughs) I didn't need a lecture in picking myself up by my bootstraps. None of us picked ourselves up by our bootstraps. We never do. (laughs) I'm not saying there's not determinism. I'm not saying you don't work hard. But in the end, it's a gift. We're given life. We're given breath. We're given talent. We're given the situations in which we've thrived. And the ultimate gift is you're given a relationship with God. It's the hardest thing for us to get into our head because we still want to believe we earn everything. And so God strips it all away and says, no, 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 it's a free gift, freely given. I give you life. The righteous prosper. Their hearts become fuller when we cease to believe that we have rested life by ourselves and we embrace the freedom of the gospel that life has been freely given to me. And so, I freely give. I give not out of duty or guilt, not because I have to. I can ask the question, what makes the city rejoice? Because I was given a relationship with God that answers the question for me. See, I I love this. The trajectory of the Bible is this. The trajectory of the Bible is cities, peoples, peoples, (laughs) people, in despair. And God weighing in practically in their lives such that the very end of the Bible, you know what it says? It's in Revelation. It's the very end. If if you've read it, you you read it in one fell swoop because it's like, it rushes to the end. But at the end, this is what it says. In that day, there will be no more mourning, nor crying, or pain. And then it has this, this just, for me, it's this magic verse where it says, and God will wipe every tear from his people's eyes. You know, it doesn't just say they'll stop crying. He said, I'll wipe every tear from their eyes. And you get this picture of a deity who wades specifically into our lives. Why? To stop misery. To stop the crying. When that hits our heart, when we weigh into our relationship with God and that hits our heart, 
then we begin to have the freedom to live like our Father in heaven. And, and to long to be people who by our actions wipe the tears from other people's eyes. And then we still hold political views. And we still believe things about economic theory. But they become subservient to a larger question which now because of Christ we've been freed to ask. Is how can I and how can we make the city rejoice? I submit to you that is the center of the conversation for us to engage in as we face this city. Let's pray. Our Father, would you help us to embrace a humility that comes not from seeing ourselves poorly, but from seeing you truly. That it's all grace. Beautiful, wonderful grace that awakes the dignity in our souls and that addresses the horrors and terrors of our life. Lord, make us the righteous. People who, because of you, give our life away, expecting nothing in return because we've received it in you. And I pray that you would give us the will and the heart today and, and day after day to ask better questions. And as we look at our world and look at those with whom we can align, that the question we would ask which would drive us is, what is it that makes this city rejoice? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Today we're going to receive the Lord's Supper, which is also called communion.